This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 65, entitled, What Does Son of God Mean in John's Gospel? Part 2. As always, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversation about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Hopefully, we have been encouraging you to do those things. Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, I am Dustin Smith, and I am your host. Just want to remind our listeners that you can access and listen to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast online at biblicalunitarianpodcast.podbean.com, on iTunes, and on Spotify. And if you'd like to interact with us on various episodes and their contents, you can request access to our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook in the search browser and type in Biblical Unitarian Podcast, and we'd be happy to have you. In this episode, we are continuing our exploration into the Gospel of John to see what the fourth Gospel has to say about the title, Son of God. It is often assumed that the Christology taught within the Gospel of John is higher than Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Christology. We've demonstrated over many episodes in the Biblical Unitarian Podcast that these earliest Gospels... Matthew, Mark, and Luke, did not teach that the Son of God was divine, that the Son of God preexisted in heaven, or that the Son of God was the second member of some triune Godhead. But can the same thing be said of the Son of God references in the Gospel of John? Thus far, in John chapter 1, the references to Jesus as the Son of God don't offer a different picture than what was observed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In this episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, we will look at the next references to Son of God in John's Gospel. Today's text will all come out of John chapter 3. So without further ado, let's dig into the scripture, into the Gospel of John. Our first point today is called the Son of God whom God has sent. This comes out of arguably the most well-known passage, John chapter 3, verse 16 and verse 17. The NASB reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's John 3. Verses 16 through 17. These passages, as we know, are some of the most quoted and preached verses in all of the Bible. And yet, there is a lot of nuancing and interpreting that is often left on the table. The complexity of these passages, which is often overlooked, offers much insight into our question of what Son of God means in the Gospel of John. The initial verse, John chapter 3 and verse 16, indicates that God has given his unique son. If you recall from our previous episode, we indicated that the Greek monoyunis, which is translated in older translations as only begotten, is more likely to refer to one who is unique, one who is one of a kind of his own class. Jesus here is the unique son. This is a good place to start when looking at what son of God means. First off, 
there remains a clear distinction in this passage between the giver, who is God, and the one who is given, who is the unique Son of God. Presumably, the relationship of God to the Son of God is that of a father. If God has a son, then that makes God the father. This God, therefore, acts in a way that demonstrates love for the world by giving his unique son, the Son of God. What does this giving entail? In other words, what does the verb to give mean in this passage as it relates to the Son of God who is given? Some think that this means that the Father gave the Son from heaven, implying the pre-existence of the Son of God. In this logic, the Father who has given the Son gave the Son from heaven, and thereby the Son of God came down from heaven down to earth. But this option does not appear to be in the minds of Jews or Christians at the end of the first century. The Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament, does not indicate in any passage that the Son existed alongside God in heaven. Those passages regarding the Son of God in the Old Testament that were cited of Jesus by early Christians, such as Psalm 2 and verse 7, 2 Samuel 7, 14, and Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, are all passages referring to a human Son of God who is on the earth. In fact, there are no Son of God passages in the Old Testament that indicate that the Son of God was in heaven prior to the birth of Jesus. Furthermore, as we have seen in our first three evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, even they didn't define the Son of God as a pre-existent figure. Not once. Now, the Gospel of John does define Jesus as the Word of God that became flesh in the human Jesus. And it seems that Jesus continued to understand himself as the human embodiment of this Word, regularly claiming to speak the authoritative words and commands of God as a sort of mouthpiece of God. John chapter 1 and verse 14 does say that the Word became flesh as the monoyunis, but that unique status is only attributed to Jesus at his birth, not prior to his birth. Again, I need to make this point that the status of Jesus as the unique one, or as the older translations define as the only begotten, is only given to the Son after he is born, not prior to that. We might also explore the possible deliberate echoes to the Abraham offering Isaac episode in Genesis chapter 22. There, Abraham gives his son. But again, there is no hint of a pre-existent son who is given. All in all, it seems most likely that the act of God giving the son refers to the life, preaching, and death of the Son of God the Son of God, who is the unique Son, being the embodiment of the Word from heaven. But the Son began to exist as a human being at his birth. There are no hints of preexistence of the Son of God in John chapter 3 and verse 16, it seems. Now moving on to John three seventeen, this passage talks about God sending the Son 
into the world. Surely, sending the sun into the world indicates that the sun was sent from heaven and descended down to earth, doesn't it? Well, not so fast. Let's look at both of these points, the act of sending and the phrase, quote, into the world, end quote. The fourth gospel has already introduced the language of sending with John the Baptist back in John chapter 1 and verse 6. There, it states that John the Baptist was sent from God with absolutely no indication or hint that being sent from God means that the one sent originated in heaven or pre-existed his human birth. John the Baptist was sent, that is, he was authoritatively commissioned with a ministry from God. Being sent by God refers more to identification with the sender than it refers to the location of the sender. So I like to say that it's more about identification, not location. What this means with John the Baptist is that John has God's authority behind his ministry because he was sent by God, but John the Baptist didn't descend from the location of God being the location in heaven. This meaning of sending is used frequently throughout the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 26 and verse 5 talks about the prophets whom God has been sending over and over, referring to the authoritative spokesman God has commissioned to speak to the people. Ezekiel the prophet was also sent to the children of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 3. Lots of people were sent that is, they were authoritatively commissioned by God with the ministry. Moses was sent. Aaron was sent. Miriam was sent. Isaiah was sent. And the list goes on and on and on. Sending did not in and of itself imply any sort of preexistence in heaven. In fact, it regularly referred to the authoritative commissioning of a messenger. So the phrase, God sent his son, would not likely have been heard or intended in the first century as God sending the son from heaven down to earth. But what about this phrase, into the world? God has sent his son into the world. This is an idiomatic phrase, both in the Gospel of John and in the wider Jewish world, referring to a person who is born. Note how Jesus uses the phrase in a parable in John's gospel, in John chapter 16 and verse 21. Jesus says, Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain, because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. That's John 16 and verse 21. See there? Coming into the world refers to the birth of an ordinary child, with no indication that the child pre-existed in heaven alongside God prior to its birth. Coming into the world, or a child being born into the world, is just a basic way of talking about human birth. Furthermore, and this is really important in regard to the Gospel of John, the noun, world, within the fourth Gospel, regularly indicates the creation that is in need of redemption, 
rather than referring to the third rock from the sun. There's a lot of people that read world in the Gospel of John, and they see that as the lower part of heaven. Heaven is above, the world is below, taking the world thereby as the world as in the earth. But actually, the world seems to be the creation that has fallen, that is in need of redemption. As we saw in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his unique son so that whoever within this world would believe in him would not perish. This is how Jesus can say in a passage like John chapter 17 and verse 14 that the world has hated his disciples, seeing there that the disciples are distinguished from the world. And they hated the disciples because, John 17, 14 says, the disciples are not from the world, just as Jesus is not from the world. In short, for John 3.17 to speak of the Son being sent into the world would have been heard as God authoritatively commissioning Jesus, the Son of God, to lost people with hopes of bringing them salvation and rescue. The same language is used of John the Baptist, of an ordinary child, and of the disciples. And there is absolutely no indication that these figures existed in heaven prior to their births. The Son of God to be sent into the world is not likely a proof of an actual existence in heaven. Our second point today is called the Son of God who is gifted by the Father. In John 3 and verse 35, it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. That's John 3 and verse 35. Now in this passage, John the Baptist is the speaker. Being a witness of the baptism of Jesus, wherein Jesus received the Spirit of God, as was indicated back in John chapter 1, John the Baptist is able to make such a declaration. Two questions need to be explored here. The first regards the significance of the Father handing over all things to the Son, and the second asks, to what do all things refer? Let's start with the first question. What is the significance of the Father handing over all things into the hand of the Son? The immediate context offers some clues. In the previous verse, John 3 and verse 34, it is said that the Son of God speaks the words of God in light of the fact that the Father has given the Son the Spirit without measure. Surely there is a connection between God giving Jesus the very words to speak and God giving Jesus the Spirit without measure. This connection could also be made to the statement of God giving all things over to the Son in our present passage, John 3.35. All things, surely, includes the authoritative words of God and God's own Spirit. So, of course, God giving his words to Jesus and God giving Jesus his own Spirit is obviously included in the phrase, all things. Of course, Jesus received the Holy Spirit at his baptism, and John the Baptist is the speaker here. He was a witness of Jesus being baptized. There is a saying among the rabbis, located conveniently in a document called Leviticus Rabbah, book 15, verse 2, that says, quote, The Holy Spirit that rests 
on the prophets, rest on them only by measure, end quote. Some of the prophets, as we know, wrote books. Other prophets didn't write any books. They were non-literary prophets. And some of the book-writing prophets wrote much larger compositions than, say, the minor prophets. You can compare something as massive as Ezekiel to something as small as Obadiah and see that yet both of these prophets were given the Spirit. But obviously, the rabbis understood that someone like Ezekiel had a much greater measure of the Spirit than someone like Obadiah. The prophets possessed varying measures of the Spirit, but God has empowered Jesus, the Son of God, with the Spirit without measure. Further help can be found in John chapter 5, where God empowers Jesus with the ability to heal, the ability to give life, and the authority to judge. Look here in John chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Again, that's John 5, verses 21 through 22. It seems, therefore, that the Son of God would not have the power or ability to do these miracles, to speak God's words, or to operate in the Holy Spirit had not the Father empowered him to do so. So returning to our questions, what does it mean that God has given all things into the hand of the Son of God, and to what do all things refer? It seems clear that God the Father has empowered Jesus, the Son of God, with the words, spirit, and deeds, wherein Jesus can conduct his ministry. In other words, Jesus is a highly empowered Son of God, but one who is dependent upon God for his empowerment. The Son of God functions as the authoritative agent of God, acting and speaking on God's behalf. But there is no indication that the Son is all-powerful or that the Son is the Almighty because the Son had to be empowered in order to function as he does in his ministry. This is the purpose of saying that the Father has given all things into the hand of the Son of God. Our third point today is looking at the Son of God to whom obedience and belief is due. In John 3 and verse 36, it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. That's John 3 and verse 36. In this passage, we see that God desires that the Son of God becomes a figure in whom people place their trust, loyalty, and obedience. Those who do not believe and obey the Son of God are under the judgment of God as his wrath currently abides upon them. Can exploring the nuances of belief and obedience, which are to be offered unto the Son of God, tell us more about who the Son of God is in the Gospel of John. Now, the act of placing one's belief, trust, and loyalty upon another human being, particularly a human being empowered by God as an authorized agent, was not unknown to the Jewish people. Moses, 
who was sent by God and empowered to do miracles, is described in the book of Exodus as the object of the children of Israel's belief. Look at this passage in Exodus chapter 14, which says, When Israel saw the great power which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians, the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. That's Exodus 14, verse 31. There, the people believed in the Lord and in Moses. King Hezekiah was taunted by the Assyrian king Sennacherib, who wrote and said that the people of God were not to believe Hezekiah, implying that the people ideally were to place the Israelite king as the object of their belief and trust from the perspective of God. That passage, by the way, is in 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 15. The servant figure, or also known as the suffering servant figure in Isaiah chapter 53, which originally referred to corporate Israel, was described with a message that was supposed to be believed. Isaiah 53 and verse 1 says, Who has believed our message? In all of these examples, God empowers an agent, working in and through him, thus allowing the agent to be the proper object of belief, the object of belief, trust, and even obedience. These human beings can be the objects of belief because God is truly working through them as his authorized agents. The Gospel of John has described Jesus as the empowered Son of God par excellence. So to place one's belief, trust, and loyalty in Jesus, the Son of God, is to faithfully trust that God is working mightily in and through his Son. Belief in the Son of God ultimately is placing belief and trust in the one who sent and empowered him, namely God himself. As for offering obedience to Jesus as Son of God, this too finds many helpful parallels in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. The Gospel of John regards Jesus as the prophet from Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Gospel of John chapter 6 states that when the people saw the sign which Jesus had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet. That's John chapter 6 and verse 14. This expected prophet figure comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18. And in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15, 18, and 19 are worth citing here for the needed context. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That's Deuteronomy 18, verses 15, 18, and 19. Note carefully that the prophet is someone distinct from Yahweh, distinct from the Lord, but is also someone who speaks the very words of Yahweh. God will put his words into the mouth of this prophet, 
and the people are commanded to listen and obey this prophet. That's what the verb listen means. To listen in Hebrew means to obey. The prophet clearly is an authorized agent of God. Those who refuse to obey this prophet's words will be held accountable to God, just as we see in our present passage, John 3.36, which says, He who does not obey the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God abides upon him. It should go without saying that the prophet here in Deuteronomy 18 is a man, a human being. As the text says, someone who is from among their countrymen. In short, human beings can be objects of belief and obedience if, indeed, God has authorized these persons as his agents. So for John 3.36 to place Jesus as the object of faith and the object of obedience, this complements the understanding drawn from the Hebrew Bible of God authorizing human beings to whom were due acts of belief and obedience. For the Son of God to be believed and obeyed places him on the map of other empowered human beings who were believed and obeyed in the Old Testament. People like Moses, the Israelite king, and the faithful nation of Israel. There's absolutely no hint or indication that the Son of God is divine simply because he is an object of belief and obedience. In conclusion, we have observed that the Gospel of John continues to portray the Son of God as a person uniquely empowered and authorized by the one true God, the Father. God has given the Son of God in his ministry, teachings, and his death without saying anything that the Son was given from a previous location in heaven alongside God. The Son of God was also sent by God, meaning he was truly commissioned by the Father and bears authority behind his words and deeds. Yes, the Son of God came into the world, but this indicates that he was born and that he enters into the realm of creation in need of forgiveness. As the passage says, Whosoever in the world that believes in the Son of God will not perish. We also learn that the Son of God is utterly empowered by God in such a powerful manner, indicating that God has given Jesus the Spirit without measure, given him the very words of God to say, given Jesus the power to raise the dead, and given Jesus the authority as the judge. The Son of God did not previously possess these abilities and authority. He has to be empowered by God with them first. And lastly, Jesus acts as the human Son of God to whom God expects the people to offer both belief and obedience. The Son of God acts as the object of belief and obedience because he is God's legitimate agent, the person through whom God is saving the world. In all the Son of God references thus far in the first three chapters of the Gospel of John, there is no indication that Jesus is divine, no indication that the Son of God pre-existed his birth in heaven, and absolutely no indication that the Son of God is the second member of some sort of trinity. Please look forward to the 
subsequent episodes in which we will dig further into the Gospel of John in its understanding of the title, Son of God, as it pertains to Jesus Christ. And if you think this podcast would be helpful for other people to listen to and enjoy biblical truth, please feel free to share it with them. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us. You can check out our episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, my name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.